So Ecclesiastes 2, verse 1 to 11, I said to myself, come now, I'll test you with pleasure to find out what is good. But that also proved to be meaningless. Laughter, I said, is madness. And what does pleasure accomplish? I tried cheering myself with wine and embracing folly, my mind still guiding me with wisdom. I wanted to see what was good for the people to do under the heavens during the, a few days of their lives. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. I also owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasures of the kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers and a harem as well. The light of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone else in Jerusalem before me. In all of this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing, my eyes aside. I refused uh, my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve. Everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Finishing uni, falling in love, landing your dream job, getting your first Rolex, Completing an Ironman, starting a family, submitting your thesis, seeing the northern lights, what's next? Isn't it like many of us grow through life like this? We're always chasing after the next thing. But when we get there, there can be a feeling that something is missing. We are not still completely satisfied. And so we keep chasing after the next thing until we get sick and tired of that rat race, isn't it? Sick and tired of just keeping up with the Joneses. So then we say, I've had enough. I'm getting out of Sydney. I'm going off the grid. Anyone done that? Go off the grid. You go camping where there's no mobile reception. We detach ourselves from our phones, detach ourselves from all things that we've been tired of chasing after. And on the first night of your camping trip, as you look out to the beautiful Australian bushland, you're like, ah, this is so nice. This is so satisfying. The second night, you're tired now because you're, you're sleeping on rocks and sticks. You're a bit cold and hungry because you didn't bring enough warm clothes. And those little tuna cans, mate, they're just not enough to make you full. But you look out at the beautiful Australian bushland and you're like, look, at least it's peaceful. The third day, you look out the beautiful bushland, your eyes are baggy, your eyes are bloodshot, you're hungry, you're starving, and you look out the beautiful Australian bushland and you say, look, there's no way that I am going to dig my own toilet again. I've had enough. I'm missing my bed. I'm missing seeing people. I'm missing that fresh cup of espresso coffee. I'm missing all my creaturely comforts. And so getting off the grid is just not satisfying. And so you go back to Sydney, 
You go back to chasing after the next thing until you get sick and tired, then you detach yourself from the world. You go, that's it, I'm booking in the next hiking trip, going to Tasmania, and it ends up being lonely, miserable again. And round and round and round we go. This constant cycle of dissatisfaction. This is our modern life, isn't it? In today's talk, we are going to examine why we experience this constant cycle of dissatisfaction from the Bible, and we're going to see how the Bible offers us a way to break this cycle of dissatisfaction. And we'll do this in three main parts. We will examine the modern pursuit of satisfaction, we'll examine the ancient pursuit of satisfaction, and then we're going to consider a Christian pursuit of satisfaction from the Bible. And so let's start with the modern and ancient pursuit of satisfaction. Jonathan Haidt, he's a social psychologist and ethics professor at New York University, and he's written a book titled The Happiness Hypothesis. The book provides a historical survey of all the thinking about happiness, and he helpfully summarizes two main ways that people over history have tried to pursue happiness, the modern pursuit and the ancient pursuit. The modern pursuit of satisfaction which is very common in Sydney, in our Western culture, is this, is to find satisfaction in our attachment to things. Things like wealth, power, achievement, relationships, and experiences. But in our own experiences and in modern research, it shows that attaining more things in life doesn't give you more happiness and satisfaction. The psychologists have termed this the hedonic treadmill. And so the hedonic treadmill says, whatever gives us this much happiness the first time won't give us the same level of happiness the second time. And so we end up being busy chasing after things like a mouse on a treadmill, but we actually don't go anywhere further with happiness and satisfaction. See, it's like coffee. When I wake up in the morning, I have a cup of coffee. And the first cup of coffee is amazing. The buzz goes all the way up to my head and it slowly drips down all the way to my toes and it feels amazing. And when I get to work, I have my second cup of coffee. But this time, I only get a bit of buzz. Not that much from the first cup of coffee. Then in the afternoon, I'm struggling to stay awake. So I get a third cup of coffee and every time I get a third cup of coffee, there's no buzz. And so, what gave me satisfaction the first time does not give me the same level of satisfaction the second time. And the same thing happens with money, our jobs, and even our relationships. This is a German study on marriage. Have a look at the chart. On the vertical axis, it's how satisfied you are in life out of 10. On the horizontal axis, it's the number of years before you get married and the number of years after you get married. And in the middle is the day that you uh, get married. And so have a look at what it says. 10 years before marriage, you're about 4 out of 10 in terms of satisfaction. You're single, you're lonely. 7 years before you, get, before you get married, you're a 3 out of 10. You're still single and lonely. And you're like, I need someone in my life. Then, 3 years before you get married, you meet someone. Ding! Goes up. You're a 5 out of 10. 
One year before you get married in your game, you're a seven out of 10. You are so pumped, you are so ready for this big wedding day and you get married and your first year of marriage is amazing. It hits up to an eight out of 10. Then two years after marriage, five years after marriage, you're back to where you were 10 years after marriage, you're less happier than when you were single. Now, everyone wants to laugh right now, but it's dead silent because you're sitting next to your wife. But you're like, no, no, no that's, that's not us. This is not us. We're very happy the way we are. And so that means single people want to get married and married people want to become single again because of the hedonic treadmill. What gives us satisfaction no longer gives us the same satisfaction again. In the passage that was read out, we read about a man who had the resources to pursue every kind of pleasure available in the world. He pursued laughter and comedy. He pursued fine wine and partying. He undertook great projects. He built houses for himself. Not just a house, he built houses, we read in verse 4. Houses that make the houses on grand design look small and inferior. But this is his conclusion in verse 10 to 11. He says, I denied myself nothing my eye desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all my labor, and this is the reward for all my toll. Yet, when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. Hedonic treadmill. Nothing was gained under the sun. And the Hebrew word that's translated as meaningless is havel, which is a word that means vapor or smoke. It means elusive, temporal, like vapor and smoke. And in the context of the passage, it has the meaning of trying to catch smoke or trying to shepherd the wind. It's impossible, right, to catch smoke. It's impossible to try to control and shepherd the wind because like smoke, it's all elusive. And that is what it's like with the modern pursuit of satisfaction through attaching ourselves to things in this world. These things can only give us temporary satisfaction at its best. Here one day, gone the next. And so if the modern pursuit of happiness is this endless yet fruitless pursuit, then maybe it's the ancient pursuit of happiness. Maybe that could be the better way. The ancient pursuit is finding satisfaction in our detachment to things. And this is more prominent in Eastern cultures, like the teaching of Buddha, but it also comes from the Greek Stoic philosophers of the West. And the life principle was this, since external things of the world can only lead to momentarily satisfaction, then don't let yourself get emotionally attached to these things so that you can control your state of mind. So for example, Buddha said, the root of suffering is attachment. Marcus Aurelius, who was a Roman king and a known Stoic, said, very little is needed to make a happy life. It is all within yourself, in your way of thinking. And to be able to obtain and control a state of satisfaction, a state of happiness internally that is independent to the external things and external circumstances in your life is very appealing, right? And that's why we're seeing this growing interest in minimalism, Maria Kondo, yoga, 
cognitive behavioral therapy, meditation, and mindfulness. And you can see they all borrow principles of this ancient pursuit of satisfaction. To seek happiness and satisfaction inwardly, not outwardly. But modern research has shown that some external things, some circumstances, does increase your level of satisfaction. So studies like this one have shown that money can buy satisfaction, but only to a certain point. And it's been researched throughout the world, and it's, the common medium is this point of $75,000 a year. It's that point where satisfaction hit its limit. Anything, you earn anything more than that, the level of satisfaction and happiness diminishes. And so it's true, living above the poverty line, not stressing about not having enough money to look after yourself and, the, and your family, having enough money to live well does contribution to your satisfaction in life. Also, philosopher Alan de Bottom who is the co-founder of the School of Life, agrees that loving relationships are important. Therefore, the advice to emotionally detach yourselves from people may actually undermine happiness and satisfaction. He said, if you want to predict how happy someone is, you should ask about their social relationships. So things and people do contribute to our satisfaction. So we've come to this massive dilemma, haven't we? We've got this dilemma about our discontentment. Attachment to things of this world doesn't make us more satisfied, but detachment to things also doesn't make us more satisfied in life. The ancient pursuit warns against the disappointment of overly attaching ourselves to things, and that's confirmed by modern research. But the modern research also critiques that the ancient pursuit is perhaps going too far in advising ourselves to attach ourselves from people and things and this world. And so we're left with this conundrum that we face and experience. But each pursuit is expressing some truth. And the truth is this. We desire naturally to attach ourselves to things. But the things of this world only offer temporary satisfaction. That's a summary of the problem. We naturally attach ourselves to things but the things in this world only offer temporary satisfaction. So we can't eliminate our desire for attachment and we can't easily satisfy our desires with temporary things. Then what if, what if the logical answer is to redirect our desires for attachment to something that's not temporal? Or should I say, what if the answer is to redirect our desires for attachment to someone who is eternal? If the testimony of the author of Ecclesiastes and many throughout the ages say that no amount of wealth, no amount of achievement and power can ever satisfy the depths of man's heart, that it must mean that man's desires are infinitely deep, which must mean it can only be satisfied by someone who's also infinite. And the most famous expression of this is by C.S. Lewis. He says, Creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. So a baby feels hunger, so there's such thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, so there's such thing as water. If I find myself a desire which no experience in this world can ever satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. 
So I would like us to now consider the Christian pursuit for, ha- for satisfaction, which I propose is more satisfying than the other alternatives. The Christian pursuit to find satisfaction is in our attachment to God. The biblical view of humanity is that our passions, our desires, our attachments, our loves are not bad things. They're not things that we need to suppress or eliminate. The problem with our desires and attachments and loves is it's misdirected. The Bible tells us that human beings were made to be in a relationship with an eternal God, loving one another in infinite joy. And so we are created for eternity with God, but we sin and we reject God and we turn to things in this world to fix and attach our love to creation instead of the Creator. But nothing can give us infinite joy and love that God can. So Christianity teaches us that God sent His Son Jesus to reconcile us to God, to experience infinite joy and an infinite relationship with Him. And when we are reconciled to God, when we're satisfied in His infinite love for us, then it actually helps us to find more satisfaction in the things of this world. Because we no longer seek these things like work and money and relationships as the deepest sources of our satisfaction, but instead we see them as good gifts from God. So let me explain. So you've been eyeing off this jacket. You know, it's autumn and you're looking at jackets and you've been wanting to buy this jacket for a very long time. And so you finally save up enough money and you go and buy the jacket for yourself. And that's really satisfying to be able to earn enough and get what you want. It's really rewarding to be able to buy things for yourself. Now let's just say someone you love, someone you care deeply about, gives you the same jacket to you as a gift. It's the same jacket that you've been wanting, but the same jacket when you receive it as a gift, it's more satisfying, it's more valuable because the jacket now has what we call sentimental value, doesn't it? The jacket is now infused with another person's love. The jacket has another person's thoughtfulness infused. The jacket is now infused with another person's generosity. It's infused now with a relationship. And this is the conclusion of the writer of Ecclesiastes that he makes at the end of chapter two, verses 24 to 25. He says, a person can do nothing better than to find to eat and drink and find satisfaction in their own toil, to see, I see, is the hand of God. It's a gift from God. For without Him, who can eat or find enjoyment? See, when we find our deep satisfaction in God, then we actually find everything else even more satisfying because they're good gifts to us by a good God. And this is the point where you might be like, hey, hang on a sec. I thought religion was totally against pleasure in the world. See, I thought Christians don't drink alcohol. I thought Christians don't like to party. I thought Christians just really love to separate themselves from the world. Well, this might be true for some religion, but definitely not true for Christianity. Christianity promotes the enjoyment of the world because God created it for us to enjoy. For those who are followers of Jesus, For those of you who are finding it hard to find joy and satisfaction in God, perhaps maybe the starting point is just to loosen up, just to rest, 
and just to enjoy the world around you, just to enjoy the good friends that God has brought into your life. Because the problem is to is not loving the world more. The problem is not that we love the world, it's loving the world more than God. The problem is not a love for the world, it's loving the world more than God. And Augustine, the Christian philosopher, was the first, one of the first to identify this problem. He said the main problem with us is that we have a disordered love. And so when we reorder our loves to love God first as our giver, then we will find greater enjoyment and love for the gifts found in this world. That's why Miroslav Volf, a Christian theologian, says attachment to God amplifies our enjoyment of the world. The Christian solution to our dilemma of discontent is this. Don't love anything less. Instead, love God more and you will love other things far more satisfaction. You will don't love anything less. Instead, love God more and you will love other things with far more satisfaction. And so if the Christian pursuit of satisfaction, to find our satisfaction in our attachment to God, if that's starting to make sense to you, if you're starting to be convinced and you're starting to find that appealing, then the question now is, how do we attach ourselves to God? How do we love God and be changed to enjoy God and love the world more? Well, we can't love an abstract idea about God. We can't love a God that is just loving in general and superficial terms. To be changed to love God, we need to understand and be moved by the true story of God's actual sacrificial and saving love for us. In the Gospel of John, Jesus tells the crowd, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. So Jesus is speaking metaphorically about himself as the one who gives people strength, delight, satisfaction, and fulfillment. But then he goes on to say, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. Jesus, what Jesus is saying, he is the bread of life that has been given over to us. He's the bread of life that has been broken for us. He's saying he's a God who came to be vulnerable, breakable, and vulnerable to die on the cross for you, to forgive you of your sins and rejection of him, to forgive you of all the ways that you've loved things of this world more than him so that you can be reconciled to him, to live a life of infinite joy with him in this current world and the world to come for all eternity. Only when you can see and accept the depths of God's love for you will your fixation of the things of this world will be broken in order for you to fix your love and affection to God. A God who was broken for you in his love. See, there's no way that you can force yourself and make your heart to love a kind of vague God. An abstract God will never change your heart. Only when you see God loving you first at the cross of Jesus Christ can your heart melt to love God in return for the beauty of who he is and for his sacrificial love by giving up his life so that we might have life. That is the God that you can wholeheartedly love and you can receive Jesus through faith 
There's nothing that you need to do. You just simply believe that Jesus died for you. If you've got more questions, if you want to know more about Jesus, then come along to the Explore course. It's the best way to explore who Jesus is and the fullness of life that he offers. If you're here and you're struggling to find joy and satisfaction in your work, in your marriage, in your relationships, in whatever circumstances that you're finding yourself in, be reminded and be encouraged that all good things are good gifts from God. And they're most likely undeserved gifts. And so be reminded and be encouraged that even as toilsome and troublesome as it has been, every good gift is given by God and every good gift is infused with his love. Every good gift is infused with his thoughtfulness. Every good gift is infused with his generosity. And even though those gifts might come and go or it gets affected and tainted by sin, you will always have the giver. Under all circumstances, you will always have God, the source of infinite joy if you put your faith in Jesus. Please join me in prayer. Our Father in heaven, help us to not love anything less. Instead, love God more as we know of your love through your Son, the bread of life broken for us, in being satisfied with your sacrificial love, may we be changed to love other things with far more satisfaction. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.